Good morning. It is Teachers Talk Radio and I'm Tabitha McIntosh with The Breakfast Show. It's Monday, it's the 13th of December and this is, for most of us, the last week of school. Apologies that my jingle is not yet working this morning. Tragically, Christmas jingle free. Um, Today I'm talking to Sammy Wright, author of the new novel Fit, Vice Principal of Southmore Academy and former Social Mobility Commission lead for schools. So let's get started. Um, Sammy Wright, just to introduce him to you. Now we might have some technical issues here because he's calling in from a laptop. So if that doesn't happen, then I'll be talking to you Um, an awful lot about what's going on without necessarily um, much of Sammy's input. And if that happens, I promise you, I'll get him back in the new year when we've had a chance to practice with our technical equipment a bit more. Sammy, just to introduce him, is currently Vice Principal of Southmore Academy in Sunderland, where he went in um, 2014, as you'll hear. Between 2002 and 2014, he taught in London, experiencing the full range of context from deprived and multi-ethnic inner city comprehensives to the affluent suburbs. He arrived in the Northeast seven years ago to set up the the first non-faith school-based sixth form in Sunderland at Southmore, establishing links with Oxford, Durham and Sunderland universities in the process. He won the, he and that team won the Social Mobility Award School of the Year in 2019 and the Neon School of the Year 2020 for Southmore's outreach program. So a long commitment to social mobility put into practice. Um, as the Social Mobility Commissioner's lead for schools, he and higher education, he has pushed for recognition of 16 to 19 education as a crucial gateway for disadvantaged young people. And his first novel, Fit, came out in October. Um, What to say about FIT? Here's what the jury for the 2020 Northern Book Prize said, and they unanimously awarded it um, the number one slot. Tender, tough, plain spoken and powerful, Sammy Wright's FIT is a nimble debut from a strong and wise new voice in British fiction. We were impressed by the vivid physicality of its setting and characters, by its simple yet arresting dialogue, by its dry and understated wit, and perhaps most by the sheer memorability of the thing, its portrait of teenage life and foster care in a marginalised northern town, remained with us all long after we'd read it. Um, as I said, Sammy Wright is hopefully joining us in uh, at 20 past seven. Um, so in the meantime, it's probably a good idea to explain what exactly we mean by social mobility, the history of the Social Mobility Commission, and some of the controversies that have beset it since it was founded, as we'll see, in 2017, moving on from a much older, um, well, a bit older organisation. So the Social Mobility Commission itself defines social mobility like this. Social mobility is the link between a person's occupational income and the occupation or income of their parents. Where there is a strong link, there is a lower level of social mobility. Where there is a weak link, there is a higher level of social mobility. So this is the, it it tends to be done exclusively with fathers, obviously. Um, Does the son earn more than the father did? So that's a kind of standard metric. And obviously those have been expanded to start including women, due to the immense social changes that happened in the 1960s onwards, but still the international standard for for measuring social mobility is what a son's doing compared to their father's. Where are they working? How much are they earning? Where do they live? Um, The Social Mobility Commission was set up in 2010 as the Social Mobility and Child 
well, the Social Poverty Commission, and then it was changed in 2012 to the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission, and then in 2017, it became the Social Mobility Commission. So there's been a lot of criticism along the way um, within those, those switches. Initially, it was seen as a response to some of the, the Tottenham riots and the riots across London and various places about disaffected, impoverished young people in various regions of the country. And then within a couple of years, it had dropped that label child poverty. Um, so some of the kind of sociological critique is that it focuses on the individual rather than structural issues. And as we'll see, Sammy um, and his team have been outstanding at drawing attention to some of the more structural issues that underpin things rather than solutions that can be generated by very hardworking individual children. The four specific responsibilities of the Social Mobility Commission as listed on their website are publishing an annual report setting out our views on the progress made towards improving social mobility in the United Kingdom, promoting social mobility in England, for example, by challenging employers, professions, universities and schools to play their part in promoting social mobility, carrying out and publishing research in relation to social mobility, and finally, providing advice to ministers, really important caveat here in brackets, at their request on how to improve social mobility in England. Um, this advice must then be published. So, there is a lot to unpack there. Obviously, as I discussed, um, there's been critics of it since 2012 have, have been very sharp on the removal of the language of poverty from it. Um, but it in itself, it's had quite a rocky history since 2017. In December 2017, um, the then head of the Social Mobility Commission, Alan Milburn, and his three fellow commissioners all resigned. Um, Milburn's letter of resignation in December that year, explained to then Prime Minister Theresa May that the reasons for their decision, including the roles on the commission being vacant for almost two years, and his belief, Alan Mil Milburn's belief, that the government was unable to devote the necessary energy and focus to the social mobility agenda. And I'm just going to read from what uh, Mr Bil Milburn said at the time. The need for political leadership in this area has never been more pressing Social mobility is one of the biggest challenges facing our country today. It's not just the poorest in society who are losing out. Whole communities and parts of Britain are being left behind economically and hollowed out socially. The growing sense that we've become us and them society is deeply corrosive of our cohesion as a nation. As the Commission's work has demonstrated, the 20th century expectation that each generation would do better than the last is no longer being met. At a time where more and more people are feeling that Britain is becoming more unfair rather than less, social mobility matters more than ever. Now, the new social mobility SAR appointed after that um, also resigned in May 2020, um, obviously at the height of the initial wave of the pandemic. Uh, she said she was heartbroken, but she said that the three days a month that were dedicated to the role just weren't enough. It was a bigger problem and she she could not do it in that time. Um, she was very supportive of the work they'd done in those last two and a half, three years. But she said, it's not nearly enough. And given the strong links between social mobility and poverty, I fear this current crisis will only serve to make social mobility harder than ever. Um, in September 2020, uh, Sammy writes, championed the particular report that came out, which is an outstanding report, uh, really devastating for looking at 
postcode lotteries of birth in this country. It's called The Long Shadow of Deprivation. I'll put a link to it afterwards. Heartily recommend it. But I'm just going to go through the executive summary. The Long Shadow of Deprivation, Differences in Opportunities. Their report finds, so this is Social Mobility Commission's own summary. Social mobility in England is a postcode lottery with large differences across areas in both the adult pay of disadvantaged adults and the size of the pay gap for those from deprived families relative to those from affluent families. One of the most socially um, least socially mobile areas is actually where I live, where I'm broadcasting from today, Chilton's area of Buckinghamshire. So we have what a lot of people in the past, a lot of conservative ministers have touted as um, as the key to social mobility, grammar schools. We, we have a grammar school system here, a very rigid one. Everyone takes the 11 plus. All children need to go to a secondary modern comprehensive or to a grammar school. Um, and we have one of the most um, serious disparities between the social mobility lifetime outcomes of the rich and the poor in the nation. So just a note to anyone who thinks grammar schools um, might possibly be the way to end social mobility problems. Disadvantaged young adults in areas with high social mobility can earn twice as much as their counterparts in areas where it's low. That's over £20,000 compared with under £10,000. Pay gaps between deprived and affluent young adults in areas with low social mobility are 2.5 times larger than those in areas with high social mobility. In areas of low social mobility, up to 33% of the pay gap is driven by family background and local market factors over and beyond educational achievement. Um, I keep going back and back to this report when looking at the relative power of individual school um, school and student factors. And what, what the Long Shadow of Deprivation 2020 report shows is that without massive reinvestment of funding into the north, into a level, a true leveling up agenda, or it's not just the north, it's areas scattered across the country. But until you have equality of opportunity across the country, then all the individual effort and educational initiatives in the world in those areas will not truly address the main problem. Uh, characteristics of the coldest spots for social um, mobility, there are fewer professional and managerial occupations, fewer outstanding schools, higher levels of deprivation and moderate population density. And the report calls on regional leaders to urgently tackle this social mobility postcode lottery. Um, but as established in those those four things that the Social Mobility Commission is, is in, has responsibility to do, they can't, the Social Mobility Commission cannot do anything about it. They can produce these coruscating, wonderful reports showing what the problem is, but they don't have the ability to then force action on any of these things, which Sammy's talked about um, before in interviews, and I'd love to have him talk about again. So before we try and get Sammy on the phone, it's time for us to go to the news with Gail Glenn um, with first a message from some of our sponsors. It's coming right up. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised 
will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Following last week's warning from Ofsted's Chief Inspector that a number of children are missing from school, England's Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, has announced that an investigation to locate the ghost children is to be launched. Some estimates have suggested that as many as 100,000 children are at risk of abuse after failing to return to school after lockdown. Rachel D'Souza said, We're hearing lots about ghost children, and I hate that term. These are real flesh and blood children. We should be able to find out where every child in England is. We should be making sure they are in school receiving high quality education. The Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, said his department had now set up a new attendance alliance designed to bring together the key figures able to tackle the problem of missing school children. Following Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Friday, that the Scottish Government would do all that it can to keep classrooms open, the Deputy First Minister John Swinney has stated that schools in Scotland will be the last thing we close. These announcements come in response to a rapid increase in cases of the new strain of Covid and a call from teaching union boss Larry Flanagan to close schools early for Christmas. He said the Scottish Government should consider an early Christmas closure if a fire break is needed to fend off a new wave. Nicola Sturgeon said last week that she would bust a gut to keep schools open as normal. Butterflies Nursery in Craigie, Dundee usually organises food bank donations around Christmas. But this year they have raised the bar and have launched a winter jacket drive. Manager Caroline McDermott said, It just came from us thinking, what else can we do to help? A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic recently. And the last thing a lot of people think of when they're doing their budget is a warm winter coat. We printed off some laminated signs and made some flyers. 
So far, it's been quite successful. Everyone deserves a winter coat. So far, more than 50 coats have been donated by pupils, parents and staff. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Thank you for that, Gail. Uh, just a reminder that one of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department for Education validated programs to help you. Read Write Incorporated Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programs and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Uh, just saying hi to Erica from Vancouver. Glad to have you here, Erica, listening in. Uh, we're talking today to Sammy Wright, author of the new novel Fit, which uh, Maxine Peake has praised and which, just to go back over to the jury for the 2020 Northern Book Prize quotation that they said while assessing why it was the winner of the award, it's tender, it's tough, it's plain spoken and it's powerful. Its portrait of teenage life and foster care in a marginalised northern town remained with all of us long after we'd read it. Um, Sammy's on today to talk about the book, to do some reading from it. As I've said, there's a potential for there to be complicated technical issues, in which case he'll be joining us in um, January, where we'll try again. But hopefully it'll work today. And uh, the other thing we're talking about is, is the thing that underpins this book, which is poverty, regional poverty, disparity in social mobility across the nation. Right, Sammy, if you are listening in at any point now, it'd be wonderful for you to drop in. Now, while we're waiting for Sammy to call in, I am just going to read to you the prefatory um, quotation at the beginning, the epigraph. Early tomorrow morning, we will take the children out into the forest to where it is the thickest. There we will light a fire for them and give each of them one more piece of bread. And then we will go to our work and leave them alone. They will not find their way home again and we shall be rid of them. Hope you will recognise that one. That is obviously... Um, the children going off in the forest, being abandoned there to then find the Hansel and Gretel to find the, the witch's house and eat it. And then we have another one, this one from Cinderella. And you, he said to Cinderella, what do you want? Um, one of the things I'm going to ask Sammy about is how he sees fairy tales and the reality of poverty coming through. I've just got hopefully Sammy calling in. Hi. Hello, can you hear me? I certainly can. Is that you, Sammy? Just <laughs> yes, checking that you're Sammy. You're not you're not a person from Vancouver. Fabulous. No, no, I am. <laughs> well, thank you very much for navigating the tech issues. I know it's not particularly easy, but well done. Um, I've just been bigging up your book here. Tell us about yeah. it. Well, I mean, it, it's so exciting that it's out um, finally, but it's 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 a book that I really wanted to write um, to kind of recognize some of the kids that I think we all know as teachers. Um, the ones who kind of sit in the background and and maybe don't 
it's not, you know, sometimes these narratives of social mobility are all about, um, you know, the amazing individual breaking free. Mm, exceptional di- individuals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just didn't want to say, tell that story. I wanted to show all the kids in a little kind of milieu and, uh, and try and reflect the way that, you know, maybe there isn't something that's going to drag them out. And maybe there are things which would make them happier, you know, with their, with their peer group. Um, and so there's, there's complications around the opportunities that they get. Um, so, I mean, I won't kind of say what the complications are, but it's about, it's about recognizing that um, these things are not as simple as, as plucking someone from one place and putting them into another. Mm, I, I think um, I, I worked for a while with um, a man who was, his research was focused on the kind of one in 10,000 mythology surrounding um African-Americans escape from slavery mm-hmm. and his sort of driving conclusion was that by focusing on the idea of the exceptional individual, you're fundamentally reinforcing the conditions for the rest of the other 999,000, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I've found um, has been a bit of a conflict for me because, you know, I've spent three years on the Social Mobility Commission and I've really, you know, it's been an amazing opportunity. It's been really interesting. And I think a lot of the, the research and the work they do is fantastic. But throughout it, myself and many of my fellow commissioners, we felt a lot of a lot of the time that actually really the phrase social mobility is some, somehow not quite right. Um, and that, that in a way, what you're what you really need to do is just focus on the whole issue, you know, the whole mm-hmm. issue of, of how society is structured. Well, there was there was controversy about about that shift from it being the child poverty commission to then social mobility and child poverty to then just social mobility. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. and what we tried to do again is like actually a lot of the stuff I ended up doing was around child po- poverty because I think anyone who looks at the the issues realizes that that's probably the biggest thing that we can actually address and solve. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the other stuff is so deeply systemic and kind of entrenched in that it's very difficult to get a purchase on. But we can at least try and make sure that kids aren't quite as destitute. Um, and that seems achievable for a civilized society. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, that was the most hopeful and depressing thing I've ever heard. But, um, right. So, so how did you manage to write this? So you're, you're a vice principal. You're running mm-hmm. the sixth form at Southmore, I think, right? And also your social mobility lead were social mobility lead for schools and higher education. And you wrote a novel. Uh, how did you have time to do all that? Yeah, well, I suppose there's two answers. One is that, you know, I've, so I've been teaching 20 years now and um, I've always written, you know, so I've always mm-hmm. found time here and there. And it's, it's just one of those things that I find kind of essential to do. But having said that, all the other things I wrote were obviously crap because they didn't get published. <laughs> so um, this one is a bit different because what I did was, you know, I reached 40 and I thought... Um, Right, I need to actually devote some time to it. So I, I, um, my school were brilliant. They let me have the second half term of the summer unpaid leave. So I took that uh-huh. and I wrote it in that half term. And then, um, and you know, I say I wrote it in that half term. I didn't write it in a half term. I wrote the draft in a half term. But the point is, once you've got a draft, you've done the kind of intense concentration. And while it's very hard doing the redrafting, it's much easier fitting that around other stuff because what you have to do with redrafting is leave it for a bit and then come back to it and leave it for a bit and come back to it, which kind of fits the rhythm of your holidays, really. Um, so once I had that, that actually worked really well. 
That makes sense. I, I think a, a lot of people talk about the, uh, the value potentially of sabbaticals in education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, the unpaid aspect of it, of course, is, yeah. is the rubber. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I know a lot of teachers who, who write um, blogs, try and express themselves because that blogs are these kind of, you know, I, I've talked before about how obsessed we seem to be with blogs in education in a way that other fields aren't necessarily. But it's mm -hmm. partly because we have time to do those kind of fictive essays that we can fit in round marking. And yeah, there's definitely value to time and focus to serious writing. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that there's something as well about it adds to things. You know, I think that there's some kinds of extra work which detract from your main main job, but there's others which add to it. Um, and I've always found that if I'm not doing stuff that stimulates me um, uh, kind of properly, then my teaching suffers and I start feeling the kind of the lunchtime uh, ennui kind of together. When, you're, when you're on the yard you think really this is my job standing on the yard <laughs> it's, yeah quite careful use of the word yard there <laughs> so um so so why set it in the north why these children why why fairy tales talk talk to me um well um the kind of the prompt for it was that you know i, I worked in london for 12 years and then um you know, I had a young child and another one on the way, and the opportunity came to to set up a sixth form in Sunderland. Um, and I went for that job, you know, knowing it was a kind of big change in, mm -hmm. in lifestyle. We moved three hundred miles, and it was it was great. I mean, really hard, but but great. But I really noticed the difference in the students I taught. Um, you know, I I went from teaching in in Muswell Hill, in a very kind of leafy affluent. Um, secondary to teaching in a place which superficially wasn't that different in some ways. You know, I, I don't, you know, the school I'm in is about 35% free school meals, which is higher than national, but not, mm -hmm. it's not one of the ones where it's overwhelmed with mm. disadvantage. You know, there's a mix and there's, there's some quite affluent kids who go here. But what I really noticed was that across all of them, you know, well, 95% of them, there was a much more kind of tentative relationship to um, what I might say the, the mainstream of, of, of British and English culture, you know, in the sense mm -hmm. that uh, they felt on the edge. They felt like, you know, they weren't central. They weren't part of, of the main conversation. There's and an he, argument, I think, oh, sorry, but I'll let you get back to that. But um, there's an argument, I think, in the long shadow of deprivation that tries to address why, um, or that does address, why London is much more socially mobile, even for um, children coming from exceptionally deprived circumstances. And it, it seems to be because in London, they believe there's a future. They can yeah. see the future around them. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I think it's like, you know, it's this, uh, the first school I taught in in London um, was... It's almost exactly the same free school meals as my current school, about thirty-five percent. Um, mm -hmm. It was in Camden, and it was a, it's a really good indicator of why free school meals is a very, very blunt instrument because that school had some really, really, you know, deprived parts of its catchment, but it also had various children of um, of New Labour grandees and, and, mm. and famous <laughs> actors and stuff like this. And so, yeah, you have kids rubbing shoulders with people who are, you know, nationally known and, and, and recognised, and you have this kind of mix and feel of possibility everywhere. Whereas what I find in Sunderland is that 
Um, you know, kids are fantastic. They're so, you know, I've, I've loved teaching here. But there is, there is genuinely is that feeling of, oh, it isn't for me. Mm. No, 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 that's, that's, that's something that, that, that the other people do. Um, and I think that's what really prompted me. What, what I wanted to kind of have in the book more than anything else was this sense that it really can feel very, very alien to go down to London. Mm, to to see high streets with nice shops and stuff like that (laughs) is quite weird for a lot of people in Britain yeah I met up with um, some people from Edu Twitter at uh, Bletchley so we'll we'll Uh do a nice nerdy thing we'll go to you know Alan Turing and da 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 and we went into the town afterwards to go to a Weatherspoons and um, it was very strange it was very strange stepping out of London essentially to then be in a town where Literally, the the shops on the high street were, um, were well, I, I spent too much time in America, and I want to go to American language bail bond places. You know, like yeah, your child's yeah. been arrested, come here, <laughs> and and pawn shops. And I was like, really, Bletchley? Yeah. This is what yeah. it's like. So yeah, that unimaginable divides across the nation. Um, yeah, why fairy tales? Well, uh, again, that's. Uh, in the, you know, obviously, as a teacher, I'm not going to talk about specifics, but I think mm. anyone who's been doing it for for a while will have kids they've encountered in extreme circumstances, and particularly because a lot of my working life has been in the pastoral side of things. Um, you know, there was examples that I encountered of kids who had experienced such deprivation that they would, would you know, steal food and stuff like this. Mm. And I found it so shocking and I just, I, I am a bit obsessed with fairy tales. Um, I've always been really interested in the, the kind of the way the narratives work and so on. So I kind of read lots and lots of different versions and different, different uh, aspects of them. Mm. And it just made me, f- you know, one of the things people often say about the grim fairy tales, for example, is that they're, they're written or put down at a time when, you know, there was a lot of famine and kind of real... Mm genuine hunger and so you read those stories in their original forms and you actually you're kind of quite shocked by how obsessed they are about eating well and that that's the entire point of hansel and gretel isn't it is it's exactly. actually yeah the desire to eat drives everything else yeah. and that's of course the that's the you know the the, the epigraph i've put there because mm. it's like this this thing of you know we listen to these stories and we think that's just a story but actually it's a story of leaving your children to starve mm. And that seems so alien and so beyond anything that we could conceive of. And yet, and you know, it's really unfortunate to say that this week, you know, we've literally just seen in the news yet another example of that level of cruelty and neglect. You know, with mm-hmm. the, with the case last week, and and um, yeah, so the connection was made in my head, and I just, I thought I wanted because sometimes. You know, <laughs> this might have been the problem with my previous books. I don't know. Who, who can say? I never want to read them again. <laughs> um, but sometimes, you know, you write and you kind of, you're, you're, you're pulled back from the extreme and you think, oh, you know, I won't, oh, that's, a bit of, that's a bit of a crazy thing to put in and so on. And uh-huh. I wanted to kind of almost use the fairy tale as a reminder that life is really extreme. Yeah. You know, it doesn't need fiction to become extreme. And so the fairy tale structure allows you to say, no, look, I am going to have, you know, wolves and, and uh, violence and, and all this. Um, and, it, and it puts it in a context that, that um, 
you know, highlights the extremity of the things that we actually do see. Mm, and I, I think your um, opening section is called, is it called Once, as in Once yes. Upon a Time? Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 You don't, you've got, your chapters aren't numbered, are they? No, no. Why? Why have you done that to me? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Like, this is one of the kind of odd things about the process. Um, you know, I, I don't know about other writers, but I, I am such a kind of obsessive drafter and redrafter. Uh -huh. So this is draft 13, um, but each draft has a number. So it's, you know, 1.1, 1.2, et cetera. So uh, yeah, and they're saved all over your times. desktop, right? Exactly. <laughs> the real one. Don't open this one. No, no. This one. Yeah. Uh, final in caps at the start of it. <laughs> that eight um, called final, yeah. Yeah. And just at one point, um, you know, they were all numbered, uh, but the numbering was largely for me to navigate through them. And uh, just at, at one point, I just I took them out of my editor said, oh, yeah, that, that really flows in there. Yeah. So apologies. <laughs> well, that, obviously, of mice and men, which we all taught for twenty years, um, that doesn't have chapter numbers either. So yeah, yeah. yeah. You're in well, and I think I think that that probably is part. I think to be honest, it's probably just a recognition of the fact that it is a short novel, and as mm. such, you know, it is. I, I think that if I was to kind of describe my ideal reading, it would be you know someone who would kind of gulp it down in a couple of sittings, um, because I think that's the nature of of how it works as a book. It's it's. You know, it's meant to be plot driven. It's meant to be kind of quite kind of, um, you know, immersive in that sense. No, so it's, than... Yeah. No, and none of those grim novel, um, short stories, fairy tales of episodic narratives, are they? Yeah. Exactly. Obviously, the Hans Christian Andersen, he'll write yeah. you a banger with several chapters and, and different things, but not the grim. They're, they're grim. Uh, yeah, you're just yeah. in it for the ride. Well, I um, I, I have beef with Hans, Hans Christian <laughs> as well. Tell <laughs> which I like the Snow Queen is possibly my favourite, but it's really a very different world to the Grim Fairy Tale. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I think my beef is just simply uh, that poor girl in the red shoes. I mean, what <laughs> did she do deserve <laughs> Well, yeah, she, <laughs> the red shoes that I was just doing that with my sixth formers the other day as part of looking at the Doll's House by Ibsen. But that that mm -hmm. is one of the cruelest fairy tales. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, I asked you to select a bit to read for us. Would you like to do that? Yes. Just like you read. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. And so anybody tuning in now, let me just reintroduce you. Anybody tuning in now, this is Sammy Wright, a polymath, man who does a million things, former um, lead for schools and higher education on the Social Mobility Commission, vice principal of Southmore Academy in Sunderland, head of sixth form and novelist, and reading to us today from his novel Fit, which came out in October. So um, I thought I would just start at the beginning, to be honest. Um, uh, so this is the, the, the first initial intro chapter, which you referred to. It's just called Once. Um, so here's Rose. Most people say her eyes are too far apart. When she's bored, like now, she wraps her legs in the yellow leggings round each other, one foot hooked round the other ankle. She does the same with her hands, twisting them so the wrists cross. She can feel the fingers on her left hand touch the skin on the wrist of her right. What did one hat say to the other, she says. She's eleven, but she often seems younger. Aaron doesn't notice. He's eight and is sitting on a low wall. His hair is thin and blonde and clipped almost to baldness. He wears her old T-shirt. It says Princess in purple glitter. The two of them are outside the shop. And their mother is inside. Rose can feel the damp pavement through her sock. She switches feet and, balancing, 
reaches her yellow leg out to prod Aaron with a toe. What did one hat say to the other? she says again. Aaron's face skews into a bony grin. You wait here, I'll go on ahead, says Rose. Aaron says, good one. They always say good one. Your turn, says Rose. Aaron's eyes drift up in thought. Rose peers through the glass. She likes the way her own reflection sits like a ghost over the people inside. She can see them moving past clothes, coasters, loose shoes and buckets, pick and mix. She shifts a little so her face floats over a woman in a bright blue dress. Oh! Aaron half rises from his seat on the wall. His limbs lurch, puppet-like. What did one butt-cheek say to the other? He shouts. I don't know, says Rose. If we stick together, we can stop this shit. Aaron cackles, a high, raw, dizzy sound that spills out of his slight frame. He's so skinny you can clearly see where the skull dips in at his temples. Good one, says Rose. She smiles at him. Aaron falls silent, a look of wonder at the brilliance of that joke still on his face. Rose switches feet again. Through the window she can see glimpses of her mother, a heel, the edge of a red coat as she rounds an aisle. When she dresses up like this, she seems like a different person. At home, they have a magazine. Rose reads it every night. She always looks on the back cover first. The girl there is long-limbed, red-hooded. Beside her, a wolf, sleek, pale-eyed. Trees fingering the darkness and a moon, a penny dropped on black velvet. She has a dream that feels like the picture. A dream of night as thick and rich as chocolate. The shop door slams. Rose! Her mother's voice hisses in her ear. She feels thin fingers grip her cheek and they press something in at her mouth. For a moment she smells the sour, faggy musk of her mother's unwashed hands. And then the sugar hits. A bright, glorious fizz of cola. Now quick! Aaron jumps up and runs off ahead. Rose hurries after him in her stockinged feet. Her mouth is filled with saliva. She feels light and dizzy. She thinks that there has never been a better taste in all the world. Did you get them? She shouts back to her mother. Yes! Rose runs faster, lighter, the balls of her feet aching. And that's how it starts. It's always the same. There are rules, and when you break them, somewhere out there in the forest, the wolf pricks up his ears, and the story begins. Thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. Have you recorded an audio version? Because I have to say that was one of the best author reading their own works um, things oh, I've ever heard. Thank you. Um, no, no, I have, I've done some little clips for, for YouTube, but um, no, I haven't, I, haven't, uh, I haven't looked at audio yet. Um, well, so wonderful. these things work yet. <laughs> <laughs> Just adore the opening. I adore the... Um, the evocation of uh, Little Red Riding Hood, obviously, which I think applies to the mother as well. You know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of Little mm -hmm. Red Riding Hoods and wolves going on in, in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and I also fascinated by the fact that you chose present tense, which I really think works. I think you use that throughout, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, the actual, to be uh, one of the early drafts of it, um, what I did was um, I had the... Uh, the, all the bits that are there were present tense, but I actually had some extra pieces which were in the voice of the foster carer, and they mm -hmm. were first person and past tense. So I was trying to kind of get uh, the sense that present tense is about child experience 
whereas past tense is about adult experience. But uh, actually, it became too confusing. That so so there's there's a kind right. of there was a quite a choice there that it was about trying to to make it feel like being a child, um, or at least being a you know teenager and the kind of immediacy of all of that. Mm. Absolutely. Well, that and also that that goes straight to the the lack of chapter numbering and the idea of it as one sort of complete tale lived in the present tense. I mean, you know, I'm an English teacher, so it's my job to to say plausible sounding things. <laughs> <laughs> so what I was about to say is by using present tense and this fairy tale thing, you are kind of on a meta level saying this is now, this is happening, this is a yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 definitely. And I think that there's also a kind of um, there's a sense there that. Um, uh, you know, like so. So one of the things there's a kind of plot point which is all about um, Instagram and uh, and stuff like this. And uh, you know, that was that was my one piece of research. All the stuff about the kids, I didn't need to research. But I had to research how Instagram <laughs> works. Um, but you know, the reason I wanted to to make sure that there was these kind of contemporary parts of it was because exactly that. You know, it's it's you know. So one of the other books that that I have loved recently, you know, on a similar vein was um, Shuggy Bane, which mm. I thought was a fantastic book. Um, but I, I, you know, I wanted to make quite a distinction between that kind of book where it's looking back and reflecting on the author's own childhood and what I'm doing here. Because I think as a teacher, teachers' voices are really interesting because what we are, you know, I'm not saying that I have experienced this deprivation. I've had a very comfortable life. This is not me. Mm -hmm. But I think there is value in the way teachers see things because we observe and we see kind of in this in this quite even-handed, neutral but sympathetic way, or or at least hopefully, um, and and so that kind of uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with it other than to say I think that the the, the perspective that we bring is really really important. In this well, thing. there's I mean, by the time my father finished teaching, he was teaching, you know the the children of children he'd taught and then potentially some of their children as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's a way in which the, the size of the, the school intake base that we look at and the fact that we see them over years and generations means that we have an almost sociological perspective on a region, I think, or a little catchment area um, yeah, in a way yeah. that knowing individuals is just not the same. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, it's like, it's, it's almost like, you know, the best designed sampling you could possibly do. Mm. You know, every kid within a given geographical area comes through your doors. Um, That's very true. Gosh, we're great, aren't we, teachers? <laughs> <laughs> Did you find, I mean, I, I think about writing about, about the, the lives of the children I see around me, but one of the things I would feel really insecure about is precisely what you talked about there, authentic detail of their, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. electronic imaginary lives or their references. Did that, how, how did you deal with that? I think, you know, again, there's something here about um, framing what you're doing in a way that, that helps you. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, the perspective that I use in it, um, you know, I, I, I use a close third in, in kind of getting inside the heads in some ways, but I don't forensically go through every thought that they have. I, I, you know, it's quite exterior in some ways. Yes. And that's a way of helping me be truthful to what I know because I can observe and be very acute about what they're feeling and thinking based on what they do. But I, you know, capturing their interior monologue is mm. something which doesn't feel quite in my skill set. So I've, I've framed it in a way that maximizes my own, my own um, uh, knowledge. 
And then I think the other thing is that, you know, when it comes to the language and the way they actually speak, there's, you know, I, I think I am quite good at, uh, at, at dialogue and kind of copying down what kids actually say. But what mm. I've found in the past is that when I do that too well, too precisely, then actually it starts to feel false. Yeah, because you kind of you you get overwhelmed with all of the the kind of linguistic ticks and you know phatic utterances and all this kind of GCSE. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so what you have to actually do is you know it's it it becomes about stripping things back so they suggest the way a kid yeah. thinks rather than actually representing the way a kid well, thinks. Well, and no, I, I think one of the, you know, as, as a secondary school teacher in London, I'm kind of at the heart of linguistic change happening constantly with um, multicultural London English, which many people argue that should be called British, um, multicultural British English at this point, because it, it mm. does, it's, it's everywhere. It's not just London. Mm, yeah. But it changes so rapidly that to fix your dialogue in form with language from, you know, May 2021 or something would, would be devastatingly hokey, I think. So you yeah, do a very good yeah. job of avoiding that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So the, um, and I, I think that, um, that, you know, the other thing I found with that as well was, again, in, in, the, in the previous un unmentionable works of writing that I have committed, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I have tried different things. And, um, you know, there, there was something I wrote when I was working in London, which I felt was very successful at the time. But mm -hmm. five years later, I feel embarrassed by it. And it's exactly that, you know, that you, you things move so quickly that they start uh, looking like museum pieces before you've even finished. You know, you know that wonderful that wonderful shot of um, Steve Buscemi saying, how are you doing, fellow kids? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is peak, sir. And I'm like, no, yeah. just awkward. <laughs> so uh, did you have... Um, what do we call it in the publishing industry? Authenticity readers. Did you did you have young people read it and say yes or no, sir? This is just orcs. Or yeah, um, I, I didn't formally, but um, my mate's eleven year old read it. Oh, which, which <laughs> I was a bit alarmed by. I don't think it's really an eleven year old's book. No, uh. she she is my reader. She's a <laughs> she's a playwright, and uh, she's very very helpful. And um, uh, and we we swap work with each other. But yeah, she gave it to her eleven year old, and I was like, oh gosh, that seems a bit much. <laughs> But um, he responded very well to it. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I should add that quote on the back after the Stephen Kelman one and uh, Maxine Peake. It's like, yeah, friend's 11-year-old yeah. says, it passes. Uh, I, actually, I have the letter that he wrote me on my fridge. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the classic 11-year-old stuff of like, I really like this. I really like... Why are they doing this? And why are the... <laughs> <laughs> that, very good and very serious review as 11 year olds yeah, they will yeah, not absolutely. let you get away with anything um so you're not actually so you've you're not on the social mobility commission anymore or no i fit my term right. you have a three-year term and right. that finished um at the end of october okay and how did you end up being on that in the first place kind of by accident slash uh chancelling my arm um uh, a colleague of mine found they, they put out an advert for them and, mm -hmm. and a colleague of mine found it and I'd been doing a lot of outreach work with Oxford and Durham universities in the northeast um, and it looked interesting it looked relevant to my experience so I, I just applied and it was because basically look I'm going to be totally honest on this um, they said you have a day a, a month 
uh-huh. didn't think it was a big deal. It just said commission. <laughs> they, said, they said you have a day a month and um, they'd pay you to go down to London. Uh-huh. I used to live in London, so I thought I'll go down once a month and I'll go and stay with my mates, and that'll be a nice way of keeping in touch. <laughs> but, and then, then after the, the application process, um, I got a letter from Theresa May, and I was a bit surprised because I, I didn't really think it was like a proper thing that, that the Prime Minister might have any hand in. Um, uh, but having started in this slightly slapdash way, it was it was brilliant, and it was what was really interesting. You know, my, my two kind of observations on, on going into it. One, um, you know, I went in initially feeling completely, um, you know, a bit fraudulent, partly because of the, mm-hmm. the way I did it. And I was you know, standing in these rooms with all these impressive people and I'm thinking, God, I, I'm not sure quite why I'm here. And then the second part of it was actually once you started talking about things and you realize the wealth of information that we hold professionally Mm. and the depth of experience and the fact that all these people who talk in the public sphere about things that are so relevant to kids and young people don't necessarily know all the stuff that they should know. Mm. So things like what is the threshold for free school meals? Quite a lot of people didn't seem to know that. And, you know, it seems quite important to know what we mean when we say, uh, you know, disadvantaged young people. Um, uh, So, yeah, it was. And so over the course of the three years, I kind of gained in confidence hugely because um, I just felt like actually, yeah, there was there was things that I needed to say and, and a perspective that I could bring that was quite important. Did you join before Alan Milburn resigned or after? No, it was it was after. So basically, Alan Milburn yeah. resigned in 2017, mm-hmm. and then there was a kind of year's hiatus while um, you know Brexit consumed lots of stuff mm. and, and so on. And then and slowly they got they got us all appointed again. Um, so we were appointed at the end of 2018, right? But you were around for the the last resignation as well. Is that Martina Milburn? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. It, I think what both of them said, um, Alan Milburn much more pointedly than her, she was much more supportive of of what everyone was trying to do, was that um, she felt like it just didn't have teeth, essentially. That, do, do you agree with that? Did you feel did, frustrated yeah. in role? Yeah, well, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, in the one sense, I wasn't frustrated because it was so much more than I had expected to be doing. Mm. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time feeling like I had more, more of a voice and more of influence than I, I had ever expected to have. But um, there is no doubt that if you actually want to tackle social mobility, then you do it by massive structural change at the heart of government. Mm. You don't do it by setting up a a commission with a a staff of six and um, (laughs) that meets three days a month. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know, and and like in the in terms of the this is the thing I think that people, you know, one gets the um, uh, the the discussion of it in the papers and all this kind of stuff and it says you know i, I know you you've used the phrase social mobility czar and kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, like like these are kind of great positions of great and awful power um, but <laughs> the statutory power of the commission is that we are obliged to re- to to uh, provide a report once a year uh, and then and, and then it says and advise ministers if they request it, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can't even just tell them; they have to ask well, you first. Like well, this vampires. is it. Is, is, you know, so the, there are other bodies whose reports um, the government is obliged to respond to. 
mm. to the National Infrastructure Commission, for example, you have to respond to their report. But mm. you don't even, you know, it is that that once a year report is given to ministers, but they don't have to say anything about it. And we uh. did, um, you know, one of the things we were really keen to do was to try and hold people to account. So uh. in, uh, um, I can't remember which report, 2020 report, we actually just went through every recommendation that the commission had ever made since 2012 and ragged it, you know, red, yeah. amber, green. Um, and we found, you know, only one in five had actually been actioned properly. Um because basically you say this stuff and unless someone has it at the center of their agenda, they don't do it. But, I, you know, having said center of the agenda, I've got to also, you know, when I started, we had the most amazing presentation from the late John Hills, who, um, if you're not aware of him, he's a fantastic um, sociologist and, and researcher yeah. into, into welfare and so on. He sadly died a couple of years ago. But um, he... Uh, uh, yeah, he gave us this great presentation in which he went through every prime minister or leader of the opposition for the last 30 years and gave the quotes that they'd given at the start of their tenure, which said that social mobility was the most important thing that could possibly <laughs> be. And they had to do something about it, the, the burning injustices or whatever. Uh -huh. And then you kind of look at the actual record and uh, everyone, everyone talks a good game on this stuff, but very few people are willing to acknowledge the stuff that's actually necessary to do if you well, want I think that's it. what I loved about um the long <laughs> I am the kind of person who's like I loved that government report that's what I loved <laughs> about the long shadow of deprivation is it's absolutely unflinching in its it, it basically saying the problem is massive disparities and structural funding yeah. Yeah. across the country the only way to solve this is to completely reorganize our society <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. I, and it's true but um but that then of course is nominally the current prime minister's agenda leveling up so you should be in line with um what yeah, he wants you know like, mm. no, no one knows what he wants or what he means he doesn't know or it. how many children he has <laughs> yeah it's all it's all um yeah i i am quite cynical about that now um, but one thing I will say as well, you know, because we are, you know, we're teachers here, we're talking to, 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 to teachers. The, mm. the thing I think that that's really relevant as well about that point about massive rearrangement of society is that um, we talk about education all the time as if the problems are about, you know, um, how much talk there is in a lesson or whether mm. we're using a card sort or, you know, um, <laughs> is it academy or a maintained school? All these, all these things that we, we obsess about, which are important in their own way, but they ignore the fact that the long shadow of deprivation report was really clear on, which is that actually deprivation um, leads to pay differentials that are not based on education. Mm. So there's yeah, lots of areas yeah. where, you know, even if you beat the not inconsiderable odds and get decent qualifications. Um, uh, and if you if you stay where you are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Otherwise, you, if those children can move to London, essentially, or somewhere yes. else with higher social mobility, which just yeah. perpetuates exactly the same inequality. Yeah, I think I quoted your um, that devastating paragraph on education. I think I quoted it about 50 times during one weekend. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <That's very laughs> You direct message me and we're like, I'm not joining in, but thank you for quoting that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think that's one of the other things with it as well is that, that um, uh, the, um, it's, it, it, it's really hard to kind of maintain the focus and the discourse around it because, mm. you know, in that, in that DM I sent you, it's, it's so easy to get sucked into other stuff, um, mm. which I find. I find Original sin, things like that.
<laughs> but <laughs> but well, I think this goes back to the fairy tales, though, and the idea of exceptional individuals. So I've got a bit of a. I'm coming around to thinking about different things you've said. So you went to this sixth form and you were working with University of Oxford and Durham, so mm-hmm. two two of the most elite, selective mm-hmm. universities. Mm-hmm. And and so often um, the kind of lazy metric for social mobility when it comes to schools is how many Oxbridge entrance places. You know, every year we have the yeah. Telegraph and the Times touting, you know, strict headmaster gets eighty children into one Oxford college, and that proves that. Um, but those are those are exceptional students those are exceptional circumstances um so i I love the idea that you're focusing on the non-exceptional because those people deserve social mobility too but but talk to me then about the sixth form thing what did you do that wasn't working with elite institutions well so basically what we set it up um so 2014 was our first intake. Mm-hmm. And the reason we we did it was because in Sunderland, there was really poor stats on, on progression. Um, and uh, um, particularly from our school, you know, they went to the college and then they didn't seem to go on mm. anywhere beyond that. So we had a real focus on uh, getting kids into Russell Group, which is part of the, the, the kind of elite thing. But what mm. happened, like essentially, as we developed, what we ended up doing, we took... 25% of our um, intake is from kids with free school meals, which given nationally it's 7% in sixth forms mm-hmm. is quite good. I'm very pleased with yeah. that. And what we found is that um, we we were able to, by having the, the focus on really kind of supporting the academic work of young people, then you support all of them. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing, like we do a lot of stuff about structuring study time and actually how do you study and here's some space to study in. Um, And the first few years we gave everyone laptops and, you know, all this kind of stuff to try and really make it possible. And what we found was that actually um, everyone, you know, there was students who went on to Oxford and Cambridge and medical school and that's been brilliant. But there was also loads of students who went through and access things they wouldn't have otherwise mm-hmm. done simply because they lasted the course. Right. That's what we'd found when we looked at the stats before, was that a lot of people were dropping out because they'd start A-level courses and they'd simply find it just overwhelming. Um, right. and They wouldn't have the skills to deal with it. So, so that was a really, really big thing. But in terms of what we then did with the kind of the most disadvantage, probably one of the... the, the most exciting things we did, which unfortunately has come to an end now, is we managed to secure a big chunk of of money from an ex-student, which is for a school institute. More of an Eden thing, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we actually sponsored kids who were in particularly difficult circumstances through sixth form. Effectively, you know, again, this is the political end of it. I basically mm. reinstituted the EMA. Um, yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, then then that comes to actually it requires cash. So, yes, uh, yes. No. And the principle of that is that, you know, obviously the bursaries and so on are, are great, but, but you know, actually sometimes people need to be able to take 20 quid home, give it to the family and say, this is my contribution. And that's mm-hmm. why you're allowing me to, to stay in school. Um, so, yeah. Um, and it's been, you know, the, the, the working in the sixth form, I, you know, I don't work there directly now, um, mm-hmm. although I still teach, teach the kids. Um, it's, it was such absolute joy because um 
you know, for all the difference that I said between the London kids and the, the Sunderland ones, coming up here, there was such a sense of, uh, of kind of community and mm. uh, camaraderie amongst them. Uh, and actually, I did an interview with a, an ex-student who's now a teacher in the school. I've been doing a little project where I'm trying to ask students what school is for and trying to dig oh, in fascinating. what yeah. they really think. Um, and they come up with some interesting things. But this, as I talked to this teacher and, and she was just recalling, she was in the first year group going through the sixth form. And she said it was so loved and propped but she said it was, it was like a family. And that was, I think, the thing that was probably most important for the kids from the disadvantaged backgrounds was that they felt kind of warm mm. and held and, yeah. and kind of supported in that way. Taken care of fundamentally mm. um, yeah now i need you to tell me what the the your students think school is for because i'm fascinated <laughs> yeah. instantly well, yeah well your mates <laughs> is the obvious one <laughs> yeah and i think uh yeah it's it's i've had a lot of arguments or discussions with people about that one of the things i always say to trainee teachers is think about your school right just think about high school right now think about it um do you remember any lesson ever like actually what the teacher, yeah. anything, what do you remember? And, and we all remember interactions with other students, yeah. a joke our friend made, something or other. That, of course, does not mean that learning hasn't happened. It's just that that's not our emotional experience for school yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've you know, this is very early stages of this project, but uh, I talked to two different students, one who uh, had had a real struggle in year nine and 10 and one who was uh, uh, much more successful in conventional terms and mm -hmm. talking to them what you know talked about friendship and so on what you realize basically is that there's no difference in the way that they're interacting with school we think sometimes about the good kids and the naughty kids and that mm -hmm. the naughty kids are the ones who are obsessed with the mates and the good kids aren't but no it's just the good kids that their mates are the ones who, who are do also lots doing of work. the work yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah they describe... make study groups together and they yeah. sit and they talk about lovely nerdy things and then yeah. they do anime drawings but they're, yeah they're, they're still yeah. thinking about their mates yeah, yeah. um and, and and actually also their interactions with teachers are social interactions they're mm. gaining a lot of validation we all know that kind of the year seven who kind of wants to talk to you all the time because mm -hmm. that is a social interaction um so yeah and i i think that uh, i don't know i think that um I, I, I kind of veer wildly with teaching. Sometimes I feel like we're kind of the most important people in the world and we do so much amazing stuff. And then sometimes I think that, you know, we are the, the babysitters and the kids get on with <laughs> the learning themselves, um, whether it's the social learning or the, uh, or the, or the lesson learning. And, and in the meantime, we try and hammer as many things into their heads as we yes. can. Uh, yes. yeah. uh, my child who, um, who it will unsurprise you when I tell you this to learn began school refusing two years later about two weeks into secondary school said to me wait it just came home and went so school it's uh it's really just a system for institutionalizing us right making us learn. <laughs> and I was like well yes duh but that, that's not a bad thing yeah. necessarily but it yeah. turned out was a bad thing and yeah. uh, it didn't last um I'd like to talk to you about um, one of my favorite things. Again, you've written so many banging things over the last three years, including this novel, which we're talking about today. Anyone just tuning in, Fit by Sammy Wright. Um, it was your response to the Education Select Committee's report. Um, the report was called The Forgotten, How White Working Class Peoples Have Been Let Down. Um, I wrote an article about it at the time for TES. It was a very good report. It wasn't a bad report at all, but mm. it had some very weird inserted paragraphs that got all the attention um, yeah. That's all yeah. the press was focused on their particular supposition that perhaps 
to, you know, a thousand years of the British class system had been caused by the introduction of the phrase white privilege, yeah. which was, um, that, sorry, that's a bit front-loading my opinion on the argument there. But um, yeah, you were very strong on it. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was quite interesting that because, you know, I have a lot of time for Robert Half and a lot of, you know, mm. he's, he's done some really good things. Um, uh, he's the chair of the Education Select Committee that, that wrote the report. And, and like you say, there was lots of good stuff in the report, but it just, I had a week that week was was an odd week because in school I was dealing with various um, uh, racist incidents, um, mm-hmm. and I literally, you know, I've actually written something for this for the uh, Ilkley Literature Festival um, because I was trying to process the fact that I was having conversations with kids in which they were saying things like, "This school's all about the blacks," Oosh. and. Um, uh, you know, if there was an accident, there was a black person and a white person, and there was only one ambulance, it would go to the black person now. And they'd say these things like they were facts. Mm-hmm. And it fe- felt to me like you could see this was the trickle down of mm. the discourse around what about the white disadvantaged? Um, yeah. And it was the, and, and, you know, like I say this as someone who spent their career, frankly, fighting for the white disadvantaged, you know, that, that yeah. is the, the young people of Sunderland a lot of the time. Um, it's the same but, discourse as you can't get a count. My mum says you can't get a council house these days because they're giving them to immigrants, which yeah, I still yeah. get from some kids. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and and then at the same time, you know, you have this report where and it's the same the thing that happens again and again in politics is you get stuff by principled people who are trying to say the right thing and want to do the right thing. But then at some point in the process of it, someone thinks, let's let's just get a little bit of political mileage as well mm. and something's added in or changed i don't know what the process was on this but to me the 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 thing that infuriated me was that you know even if you took it at face value what they said which was um that uh the use of the term white privilege is is divisive and frankly i, I get that point you know mm. i think oh, I, I find if you have to spend 20 minutes explaining what something means yeah. then it's not a useful term. Exactly. I it does it does describe a very re- real sociological phenomenon but it's not useful I think outside of that context. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So you know I'm I'm probably supportive of the idea that you shouldn't really talk about that in schools you should talk about much more understandable things. Mm. But um, if you say that, that using that term is the problem and then you write an article in the sun mm. with the headline white privilege is just a myth to 1 million poor kids. Mm. That seems somewhat inconsistent. Yeah. And if you say that, why are we all talking about this stuff, talking about this as a problem, but you say it again and again and again and again, again, that seems somewhat inconsistent. So I, yeah. I'm quite all right, frankly. You know, I think the nature of the, the issue around race and class in this country is such that, um, uh, you know, we need to talk in fairly, uh, fairly technical language a lot of the time because mm-hmm. I think that, that anything else becomes over emotional. Uh, yeah. I think we need to look at the the way these things intersect. Um, I don't think intersectionality is a bad word, by the way. No, that's well, that's the thing. It's word. wonderful. There, there was a great piece in The Spectator by, um, is it Douglas Leith? Prue Leith's son, who's, mm. who's the most reasonable man on... Um, on staff <laughs> about white privilege the other day and oh, the other day a couple of months ago and it was like we all know it exists like what are you what are, what are we arguing about why are we doing <laughs> yeah, this yeah. of course we understand intersectionality yeah. let's stop pretending to be idiots about it but yeah. um you know there we all carried on so yeah 
Um, anyway, so like that that that's why I, I reacted quite strongly to it, mm. and um, uh, and I think that, um, and I suppose the saddest thing in it all is that that you know we still haven't actually got anything concrete to help the white working class or the white poor because that was one of the points I was making. My, my most cynical um, version of what the function of that particular insertion of discourse was that it, it just took all necessity of paying attention to the rest of the report away. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Might have been about you know massive systemic issues or let's, how did you say it, uh, long-term and systemic issues mm-hmm. right? with, mm-hmm. with huge challenges of poverty. If you just turn it into flippant culture war stuff, then yeah. you, know, you can just yeah. ignore the entire thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but it's uh, and you know the other thing I do think is, you know, if, if I allow myself to get depressed on these things, I, I I think that well, okay, the 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 issue we have is is that the systemic stuff is actually too difficult, um, and people can't see the way of doing it, so of course they they shy away from it. Uh, mm. But yeah. yeah. So what do you think in the end? Then the Social Mobility Commission is a force for good, given that it can't really affect change or even get its reports read? Um, um, I think it is a force for good. I mm-hmm. think it, it does. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, so, you know, you've, you've talked about long shared deprivation and, 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 and reading it and referring to it. What you find is, is when you actually talk to people across, uh, you know, social policy in all sorts of different ways, they constantly refer to the research done by the mm. commission. So the research is fantastic. Um, the way that over the three years I was on it, we kind of made connections with all sorts of other bodies, you know, added up to a huge amount of, of positivities. So there's lots of good stuff there. It's just that its job, its function, if you, if you define it by, is it going to stop mm. <laughs> inequality? Then it's not. That can't yeah. be its function. Its yeah. function is to shine a light and to kind of make points and, and, and so on and be part of the discourse. But you need you need the energy coming from actually the heart of government. Um, yeah. Uh, and anything else is never going to do it, frankly. Mm. What would your advice be to um, the new social, media, uh, social, social mobility czar? Yeah. I'd say, I mean, I think that uh, I wish her all the best. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, I, I suppose I'd just say um, follow the research, you know, um, uh that's what the commission has become really good at um commission some new interesting research um mm-hmm. and uh you know well, i think what's very good about her is that she is a she's even won a contrarian prize hasn't she and i think yeah. she will be um uh, a thorn in the side of the government if she's she's exceptionally to. good at um at, get, at communicating as well yeah, at communicating absolutely. messages absolutely. and getting the attention of people so yeah and i think that's, that's probably one great. of the things where she will improve on what we did because none of us were uh um yeah i don't know who you were of... sorry mate <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. you've only got one and a half thousand followers on twitter or something she's rocking eighty nine thousand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um yes yeah. i'm just a little small fry those skills <laughs> No, but uh, but you're right. If if fundamentally, so commissioning research hugely important, but then drawing attention to the results yeah. of that research, uh, being yeah. a, a spokesperson, that's that's very important. And Martina Milburn, if I'm remembering her name right, in her uh, in her resignation letter, said she thought it should be three days a week, not yeah. three days a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would well, you, you agree look, with that? Yeah, absolutely. And the basic thing is, if you look at the the children's commissioner, that role has been very successful, actually. Mm. Um, 
you know, and Longfield in particular drew a huge amount of uh, attention to some very important issues. But that's a full time role, right? And and yeah. you know, I just think it is weird. I think the the idea of the 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 nature of the role was created basically to serve someone like Alan Milburn, who yeah. is constantly walking the, the the corridors of power, interacting with people. Basically, you might be doing it one day a week, but they are their full time job is politicking. Uh, and I think it's good that, that it's no longer with people like that. I think it has, taking it outside the Westminster bubble has been really important. Mm. But I think once you take it outside, you need to give people time. Because, you know, to do this alongside trying to run a school or trying to kind of yeah. you know, do any of the other right, novel. things that yeah. people get, exactly. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit too much, frankly. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. But um, what, what would you commit commission research into? If you had, um, if you click your fingers, you personally, what would you commission research into? I, well, I mean, the, the, the thing that, um, the question that I did ask, which I was very interested in, was, um, you know, which of the schools that are actually closing the progress gap? Mm. That, was, that was our report against the odds in the summer. The answer to that was great. Um, not great, it was awful, but it was, uh, it was <laughs> so stark. It was, uh, right. it was, there was 11. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> 11, 11 schools, schools in the country. <laughs> and, wow. and six of them were grammar schools. Yeah, Three were ex yeah, yeah. one was yeah. ex-independent, and one was uh, investigated Rolf Rowling. So none of them were represented. <laughs> well, that's the thing; they were they were selecting children who whose progress gap they could close. Exactly. Right? exactly, right? I think I, you probably weren't listening at the beginning, but um, in that long shadow of deprivation, one of the regions um, identified as the least socially mobile in the country, one of the biggest cold spots, is the one I live in, Chilton, yeah. yes. in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I have. What's your thought on grammar schools as a potential way of... Oh, it's nonsense. Thank you. It's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, That's on. all I wanted you to say. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that one. <laughs> yeah. It's associated with lack of social mobility. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not, yeah. Now, um, uh, at this point, I have to... Um, uh, I'm due on my duty on the yard. So okay. I'm, I'm going to have to draw to a close there. Um, but uh, it's been really nice. Uh, yeah, thank you so much having you on. I will um, link up your book and, and your various articles and your long shadow of deprivation report. Um, it's been wonderful to have you on. And um, yeah, have a lovely time out on the yard doing your bleak do. existential duty. Do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All the best. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right. That was uh, Sammy Wright fascinating man wonderful things to say and um i agree with him on just about everything he said so of course i'm even more pleased uh it's gonna play the news and a message from our sponsors again before wrapping up for today are you looking to take your phonics practice forward then little wondle letters and sounds revised is the program for you created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. 
Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. last week's warning from Ofsted's Chief Inspector that a number of children are missing from school, England's Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, has announced that an investigation to locate the ghost children is to be launched. Some estimates have suggested that as many as 100,000 children are at risk of abuse after failing to return to school after lockdown. Rachel D'Souza said, we're hearing lots about ghost children, and I hate that term. These are real flesh and blood children. We should be able to find out where every child in England is. We should be making sure they are in school receiving high quality education. The Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, said his department had now set up a new attendance alliance designed to bring together the key figures able to tackle the problem of missing school children. Following Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Friday that the Scottish Government would do all that it can to keep classrooms open, the Deputy First Minister John Swinney has stated that schools in Scotland will be the last thing we close. These announcements come in response to a rapid increase in cases of the new strain of COVID and a call from teaching union boss Larry Flanagan to close schools early for Christmas. He said the Scottish Government should consider an early Christmas closure if a fire break is needed to fend off a new wave. Nicola Sturgeon said last week that she would bust a gut to keep schools open as normal. Butterflies Nursery in Craigie, Dundee, usually organises food bank donations around Christmas. But this year they have raised the bar and have launched a winter jacket drive. Manager Caroline McDermott said, it just came from us thinking, what else can we do to help? A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic recently. And the last thing a lot of people think of when they're doing their budget is a warm winter coat. We printed off some laminated signs and made some flyers. So far, it's been quite successful. Everyone deserves a winter coat. So far, more than 50 coats have been donated by pupils, parents and staff. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week we're going to look at one of the simplest, freely available, yet least used browser technologies, the Reader View. 
Chrome versus Edge. Let the battle commence. On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening reader view. On the Edge browser, the immersive reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar. By typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open reader view in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader. Round two, features. Both come out fighting with the read aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back, and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control, which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader. Round three, readability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font and text width on the screen, but they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers 8 background slash contrast colours, 4 light and 4 dark. Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader. Round 4, Editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to highlight text and make changes. Quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One point Chrome Reader. Round five, extra features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences, featuring line focus of five, three or one line, blocking out the rest of the page. There's a picture dictionary, allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products such as Google Translate could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point because you don't need to leave the page. Final score! Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. Um, thank you for listening in while I talked to Sammy Wright. Uh, I thought it would be nice to finish by talking about or reading um, one of the many things I've referenced relentlessly. He read us very beautifully the opening of his novel, That's Fit by Sammy Wright, which came out in October, um, available from all good booksellers and winner of the Northern Book Prize. But what I'm going to read you now before we go is his response um, speaking as social media commission lead for schools and higher education to the educational select committee's report the forgotten how white working class pupils have been let down and how to change it now as sammy and i both said um as many people said at the time it's a very solid report with an awful lot of very good things in it however it also has a section on the phrase white privilege um and ha a, a supposition there i guess that that might be one of the main drivers of white working class underachievement. And as Sammy said, in the, the author of the report put that idea forward in the sun, went to the sun with that idea. And therefore that's how this, this report was overwhelmingly taken. And this was his response um, 
which I will link afterwards. To focus on the fact that it is the white pupils identified here that are underachieving is to put the cart before the horse. The significance is place and context. Ex-industrial marginalized communities that have experienced decades of underinvestment. Most of these communities are predominantly white, and one of the reasons they have remained white is precisely because there has been so little investment or opportunity. Many people reading this will identify as white working class and think that this is about them, but it's not. The underachievement is by white pupils on free school meals. Working class is not the same as poor, and poverty takes many different forms. A smaller proportion of white children live in poverty than any other group. To say that the use of the term white privilege, which has really only become part of the discourse in the last few years, has a role to play is to ignore how long-term and systemic these issues are and risk minimizing the challenges of poverty for all ethnicities. And then my favorite paragraph, educational underachievement is only part of the picture. Our report, The Long Shadow of Deprivation, shows that even if students beat the odds and get good qualifications, in the least socially mobile areas of the country, they still face a wage gap at age 28 of up to a third. The answer to these issues is about thinking about investment in jobs, transport, housing, welfare, and wider opportunities, as well as in schools. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to regular listeners, that chat there, and early years, Alex. And um, I hope you all have a lovely week. I'll be back next Monday for the second part of my outdoor education deep dive into weird educational history, fun times. Um, and then we will be on Christmas break for two weeks. So good luck with the last week of class, everyone. For those of you who have to go on into the next week, I'm so sorry. Um, and I'm so glad I'm not you. Uh, <laughs> pleasure as always says that chap there i'll see you next week i hope all right bye everyone have a nice week let's see if this final jingle plays you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio